Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And on this episode, we're discussing SST 260, the Screaming Trees Anthology Double LP. And unfortunately, it's our last Screaming Trees record. Interesting that we're doing two double LP comps back to back, kind of the last showing of The Descendants on 259 and last showing of Screaming Trees on 260 here. But uh, we always appreciate another opportunity to get into the trees. We love the trees. I, I always have loved them. Uh, but definitely through doing this podcast and digging super deep into their records, I just I continue to love them more and more mm-hmm. and uh, all their side projects and everything. And we've got a special guest. You bet. We've got Donna Dresch on the show. Yeah, very cool to have Donna on the show. Donna was in the band for a spell in between SST albums and almost in the band a second time, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, during the major label days. So very cool to have Donna on. She's got a lot of history in the uh, the American underground indie rock scene and also uh, played for a spell on Dinosaur Jr. So very, very cool to have Donna on the show. Before we get into the trees, though, Brent, how about some spiels? How about some spiels? So you've been <laughs> you've been giving me a bit of a hard time about not finishing my alphabetical album spiel. And yeah, also some listeners have even chimed in. You don't even know what letter you're on anymore, <laughs> oh, do I know. you? I know. I honestly, Ryan, I'm so intensely focused on new music that it's it's hard sometimes. Spoiler alert, there are some stone cold bangers this year, so Thankfully, the dam is going to, to burst here pretty soon, and we'll be doing our top tens for the year. Are we doing it this year or next year? I don't know yet, but it'll be soon. <laughs> <laughs> you actually use that word bangers, hey, for like good tunes? Well, I just did, so. Yeah, I don't know. I re- I've always resisted that, but you're in, hey? Yeah, I guess okay. so. I'm dipping okay. my toe in that one anyways, but okay. uh, I'm dying to spiel about all the incredible music that came out in 2023. That mm. said, I haven't done one of these in months, not since I did the letter I, and I got major points for hipping you to the band Ills, remember? True. That's true. So give me some J. Yeah, hopefully the trend will continue with, with the Js. And let's just get this out of the way right now. Some of these, like the first one, you're going to give me shit for because it, you know, the way it alphabetizes it is alphabet. What is it? Is it John Lennon? Yeah. It's John it, Lennon, isn't it? It's like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. John Trudell, actually. <laughs> okay. Just go for it. Yeah. AKA Graffiti Man. That's the name of the record. 1986. This was originally released on cassette, later re-released more... Uh, wild, widely, I guess, in the early 90s on Ryko Disc. Now, I had heard about John many times, mainly in associ- association with his activism around Indigenous rights and progressive politics. Uh, but to be honest, I had never really heard his music until I tracked this album down after we did episode 151, Scott Colby's Slide of Hand, hmm. uh, which featured Indigenous guitarist Jesse Ed Davis on a track. And I started to research Jesse, which led me to this album. Jesse produced produced it, played guitar on it, and co-wrote all but a couple of the, the tracks on it. Both have had fascinating lives. There's a documentary on John Trudell that I've been trying to track down. Uh, this album totally rules socially conscious lyrics, almost spoken word, Lou Reed-esque uh, vocals. Um, he is a poet, after all. 
it's killer. If you ever see that, snatch it up, Ryan. Okay. Uh, speaking of poets, Jim Carroll, the Runaway EP from 2000 on Kill Rockstars, also a bit of a tie-in with this episode. Oh yeah, right. Uh, it's five songs. Now, you know, I bought the Jim Carroll band album Catholic Boy many years ago, decades, I suppose, at this point, like probably a lot of people our age after seeing the Basketball Diaries movie. And I also bought his book, Jim Carroll's book of the same name around that time and just totally devoured it. But I never went past that until this EP came up on my radar and it's because it's on the tree. So the title track is a cover of Del Shannon's Runaway. Uh, there's a demo of, of a song on his final studio album before his death, 1998's Pools of Mercury on this EP. And then there's three songs recorded live at the Crocodile Cafe in Seattle. So check this out. Robert Roth of Truly is on guitar and organ. Wow. Uh, he also got a couple of co-writing credits. Brian Young on drums for a, a few of the tracks. Uh, he, he played with the Jesus and Mary Chain, the Posies, others. Kurt Block of the Fastbacks on guitar. Yeah, yeah. Check this out. Hiro Yamamoto on bass on the track Whoa. Hair Shirt Fracture. And another tie-in with this episode, Mark Pickerel on drums. Wow. Yeah. So check the song Fall Down Laughing, co-written with Robert Roth. It's just awesome. That sounds cool. Okay, number three, Jones Very, Trains of Thought. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Give me some Vic Bondi. Yeah. CDEP version I did, 1991 Jade Tree. I love Articles of Faith. Um, yeah. I don't care what Steve Albini says. Vic Bondi is the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have all of that dead-ending dead stuff and reports report suspicious activity. Uh, but I have a blind spot, actually, on Alloy and this band for whatever oh, reason. Oh, I love Alloy. Better than Jones Very, actually. Alloy. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I don't know why. I just, I miss those bands for some reason. Also in the band, Jeff Goddard from Apology, another band we spieled about recently. Uh, Grin and Karate is the bass player. Uh, Jamie Van Brammer of Grin on drums. Uh, pretty short-lived band, actually. 89 to 91, Jones Very. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd say influenced by Husker Du, maybe. This was recorded at Fort Apache by Lou Giordano. Uh, it's really, really good. I'm kind of surprised that it's never been reissued and that it's not talked about more. Um, yeah, you never hear about them, but no. it's de it's decent stuff. Like if you if you like any Vic stuff, but especially the Alloy stuff, you'll dig this for sure. And yeah. SST bands, you'll dig Jones Very. Yeah, there were also two full links. Um, mm -hmm. I've never I haven't heard either one of them, but I intend on correcting that error ASAP. Yeah, do it. Number four, Jane's Addiction, Ritual de lo Habitual. So recently, my brother-in-law, Clint, and I drove out to your place, Ryan, to hang out. Um, thank, True. Thanks again for the couch and the pizza. Uh, <laughs> we also watched what movie? No Holds Barred. No Holds Barred. <laughs> While we were at your place. Um, yeah. On the drive there, we were, he and I were taking turns blasting tunes. It's like a seven-hour drive. Um, and Clint put this on, and I just, I was like, I, I turned it down, uh, you know, as soon as like the Senora scene, Senoras came out of the speakers, I was like, okay, dude, like you have to know if you're going to, if you're going to play this, like I'm going to sing every single word at the top of my lungs. And that's exactly what happened. I've always loved this record. I've heard it hundreds of times. I've always loved the sequencing of it. It's kind of like my war in the sense that 
Um, side one is kind of the shorter hits, in air quotes, and side two is the longer deep cuts. I love everything about this record, from the artwork to the music. It is just a perfect album. I don't really know what's up with the band. <laughs> it's seemingly impossible to get the four original members back together. Eric Avery is finally back in the band, and now Dave is... Apparently, he has long COVID, Dave Navarro. Uh, rumor, has, yeah. rumor has it they're recording a new album with Josh Klinghoffer on guitar. Josh has been playing live dates with him. Uh, a buddy of mine saw them, and he said that Josh was just insane, yeah. like just, just a shred master. Yeah. I love Dave Navarro, but I would... I would settle for a, a live or for a new album with with any configuration of the band at this point. Mm. Next up, Ryan, a possible recommend of yours. I thought I thought it was when I listened to it when mm. when I put this on. I was like, I, I feel like Ryan recommended this, but then it didn't seem like something you would be into. So I, I'm intrigued. Yeah, Junk Monkeys, Firehouse. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I would have recommended that for you totally. 1987, Happy Face Records. This is totally killer, dolled up, thunders, heartbreakers, rock and roll from Detroit, right up my alley. Can't believe I didn't know about this band, Yeah, uh, but I'm all over this. They ended up releasing a few more on Metal Blade, actually, yep. uh, and breaking up around 92. Uh, I'll be tracking those down as soon as humanly possible. They actually remind me a bit of the Westies sometimes. Yep, they've got a Minneapolis sound, 100%. Yeah, I think it's maybe guitarist vocalist David Bierman who reminds me of Kirk Johnson vocally. Yeah, yeah, they're so good, good, good records. There's your street cred that you've been craving all this time. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Only got to wait to episode W to hear you rave and drool about the wildflowers. Yeah. Okay, speaking of the Westies, Joseph, Arthur, and the Lonely Astronauts. Let's Just Be is the album, 2007, Indica Records, uh, an indie label based out of Montreal. Joseph is a singer-songwriter from Akron, Ohio, apparently discovered by Peter Gabriel in the 90s, who signed him to his real-world label for a few solo albums. Uh, he then released a pair of albums with this backing band, The Lonely Astronauts. Sybil Buck is the bassist. She was in a band called Champions of Sound with Chris Trainer of Helmet and Sergio Vega of Quicksand. Jennifer Turner on guitar. She's played with a bunch of people like Mary J. Blige. She was in the Lemonheads, lots more. Drummer, drummer Greg Wizorek, um played with Nora Jones. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, he played with the Twilight Singers with Greg Dully of the Afghan Wig Wigs. Uh, the guitarist in The Lonely Astronauts is Craig Jarrett Johnson of the Westies. Ah, there yeah. you go. Joseph Arthur, um, the leader of the band, he was in this band Random. RNDM with Jeff Emmett of uh, of Pearl Jam. Um, he was in this group Fistful of Mercy with Ben Harper and George Harrison's son Danny. Uh, he did an album with Peter Buck of REM called Arthur Buck. So he definitely has a, a real pedigree. Musically, mm -hmm. this is kind of Stonesy, T-Rex, Tom Petty-esque rock. It's really good. The guy can really sing uh, and really write a song as well. Uh, I tracked this down because of the Westies connection, and I, I definitely need to hear some more. Another album, Ryan, that just would not have been on my radar were it not for this show of ours. Oh, yeah. It happens every episode, right? Yep. Number seven, Jerusalem Slim, self-titled, 1992. This one was one and done. Uh, this is a post-Hanoi Rocks band formed by Michael Monroe circa, circa 1990 after his first few solo albums. Uh, Ex-Hanoi 
bassist Sammy Yaffa is on bass here, Billy Idol's guitarist Steve Stevens on guitar, and Greg Ellis on drums, who we saw on which episode, Ryan? Oh, I can't remember, man. Episode 196, Paul Rossler, Abominable. Oh, wow. Yep. Ian wow. McCl- even Ian McLagan of the Faces also played on this. Um, it, the band didn't last. Stevens and Monroe had musical differences. Uh, Sammy Yaffa talks about, a little bit about it, about the band and the album in his book. He, he doesn't rate, rate it super high. You know, it's a good album. You always call Hanoi hair metal. This is actually as <laughs> as close as they got, I would say. To, oh, to, come on. To hair metal. Uh, That's the closest? Oh, yeah, for sure. Come on. Mainly because of Steve Stevens' guitar playing. He's more from the Eddie Van Halen school of guitar than the Thunder's Keefe school that Andy McCoy of Hanoi's from. Mm. Uh, it's a decent record, but it does get a little shreddy at times. And as you know, Ryan, I do love my shred guitar, but maybe not in a Michael Monroe project. Um, mm. There are some classics, though, like Hundred Proof Love. Um, this seems like a perfect opportunity, Ryan, to reference this clipping that a listener sent in with a Ginn interview where he talks about how Henry's lyrics to Drinking and Driving were written as kind of a tribute of sorts to Razzle, the drummer for Hanoi Rocks, who was killed by Vince Neil of Motley Crue in a drunk driving accident. How about that, Ryan? Wow. That is that is conceptual continuity right yeah, there, that for is, sure. That is what Watt calls a mind blow. That is a mind blow, for yeah. sure. Hey, speaking of Mike Watt, did you uh, did you see that John Wright from No Means No was on the Watt from Pedro show? I did see it. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Yeah, I got I got one hour in. It's pretty good. John, <laughs> John, John, and Watt. How can you go wrong? Yeah, right? no kidding. Number eight, Jonathan Fire Eater, Tremble under oh, yeah. Boom Lights, nineteen ninety six, five song EP. Later expanded on reissues, of which there have been a few different ones. Uh, I think the most recent on Third Man actually. Uh, they were a New York band that were lumped in with the New York post-punk revival with bands like The Strokes and Interpol. Uh, I read about them in a book you actually gifted me, Ryan, called Meet Me in the Bathroom. True. Rebirth and Rock and Roll in New York City, 2000 to 2011 by Lizzie Goodman. I'm not really super interested in some of those bands, uh, but I love me a good oral history, and that one is good, and this album's great. Three of the band members went on to form The Walkman, and unfortunately, vocalist Stuart Lupton passed away in 2018. Um, he has this great Jonathan Richmond drawl, and these songs are, are really killer. Give Me Daughters is just like an all-time classic post-punk track. Okay, speaking of post-punk, Junk Ranchers, and the album is called 86, self-released. This is a Boston band, so it was... Uh, it was recorded in 1986 and went unreleased until 2020. Again, mixed by Lee Giordano, uh, touched up recently by Kirk Swan of Dump Truck for the re-release. Ooh. Uh, mem- members of Speedball Baby, Christmas, $5 Pri- Priest, Blood Oranges. Uh, they were only active 84 to 86, but played a reunion show in 2021. Their first in 35 years. It's kind of 80s college rock meets, meets post-punk. Um, they have a band camp. Check it out. The Junk Ranchers. Yeah, that's a new one for me. And last but not least, Ryan, Jason and the Scorchers, A Blazing Grace. 1995, Mammoth Records. I love Jason and, and the Scorchers. They never made a bad record. Still hoping they follow up 2010's Halcyon Times because it was excellent. Hard to believe it came out ten, uh, 
whatever, 13 years ago or however long that's been. I love Jason's solo albums, including his children's, children's records that my kids just loved when they were, were toddlers. Warner Hodge's records are all great, but they're at their best when they're together. This isn't one I go back to as often, but whenever I do, I wonder why, because it's just awesome. A nice mix of honky-tonk, cow-punk, um, and just super-inspired rock and roll. One More A Day Weekend is is pretty much my theme song. Do yourself a favor, check out their performances from Farm Aid on, from 1986 on YouTube. They were as good a live band as any band ever, and they were just the epitome of cool. Wow. There you go, Ryan. Now you can get off my back now. <laughs> <laughs> For another six months. <laughs> That's all I have. What do you have? All right. Well, I've got a record store day report. Oh, Just, good. I've been waiting yeah. for one. I yeah, kind of requ- requested this. You did a yeah. little bit. Yeah. I don't really do a deep dive in it because frankly, I'm a little record store dayed out. I appreciate it, but I definitely have a love hate relationship with record store day, but I wanted to give a record store day on the SS tree report. And there's a definite tie in with this episode, which I'll get to in a second. I'll start with some re-releases. The uh, Meat Puppets Forbidden Places is being re-released. Um, nothing special uh, on my read, but uh, you know, for those who haven't had it on vinyl, um, apparently it was not really readily available on vinyl, but now it is uh, as part of Record Store Day, so there you go. And it's good. Yeah, good it's record. Really good. Yeah. The soundtrack to Judgment Night. If you remember the Judgment rap... Night. <laughs> Judgment <If> you... Night. <laughs> If you remember the rap metal boom, here you go with, uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm just going to list off the band names, but, uh, this, this has, of course, alternative bands with hip hop artists over top as kind of a a mesh, um, on this soundtrack. So there's, there's songs where there are, is like Sonic Youth is on there, Mudhoney, Helmet, Teenage Fan Club, Living Color, even Faith No More, which is interesting. Um, because they were already kind of, you know, rap metal, but then they, you know, they had someone else guest on that, but that was kind of the thing, a very, a very common type of combo back then judgment night, but definitely on the SS tree. Isn't dinosaur on it? It's actually dinosaur junior with Dell, the funky oh, homie, Del the, yeah. Del the funky homo sapien. Yeah. So yeah. there's that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've not really followed uh, that record, but it's on the SS tree. So there you go. Uh, a couple of honorable mentions on some re-releases though, uh, probably on the SS tree in some way or the other, but there's, uh, a hard to find record by Jesus lizard on vinyl blue is getting re-released. The Goo Goo Dolls first album, first release also on metal blade. That's a, a classic record. It's great. If, if you like junk monkeys, you'll like the Goo Goo Dolls, right. And soul asylum, that type of stuff. Yeah. The X album ain't love grand. That's actually a pretty common one to find on vinyl, like mm-hmm. to this day, but they're re-releasing it. Go go figure. Um, but here are two new records on the SS tree that I wanted to mention. And one, of course, is a tie-in. The first one is by Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, and it's called Gory Scorch Cretans. It's a 12-inch record, and it's kind of a take on the Melvin's record, Gluey Porch Treatments. Here's what the write-up says, and this is uh, Matt speaking. I've been a massive Melvins fan since I first saw them play live in Seattle around 1985. They were a huge influence on me as a musician and a big part of our local Seattle burgeoning underground rock music scene in the 80s. 
I reconnected with the Melvins in 2019 when they performed at the Chris Cornell Tribute Concert in Los Angeles. After the show, I emailed Buzz and asked if he, Dale, Steven, and Toshi, that's Toshi Kosai, like their, their engineer producer, could help me record some solo material I had kicking around. I also collaborated with Seattle musician producer Nate Yachino and Megan Grandel on this release. I thoroughly enjoyed the experience, completely dug the results, and decided to pay homage to the Melvins by reimagining the artwork with their permission from their groundbreaking record, Gluey Porch Treatments. That's where the album title comes from. Instead of Gluey Porch Treatments, it's Gory Scorch Cretans. It's a five-track, 12-inch EP. That one I got to check out. And then, of course, the mega tie-in with this episode is a new Screaming Trees live recording is coming out for Record Store Day. It's called Live at Egg Studio. And here's the write-up on that one. In early 1991, Screaming Trees were in shambles. Mark Pickerel had left the band a year earlier, and Van was off playing bass for Dinosaur Jr. Mark Lanigan and Gary Lee Connor were set to continue with Donna Dresch on bass and a friend of hers on drums. And you'll hear about that in the interview. Uncle Anesthesia, the band's first major label album on Epic, had just been released. That's kind of the second time when Donna was going to join the band. While it seemed that working with the new band members might work, Gary Lee was despondent at the prospect of again playing in the band without his brother, as Van had already quit and come back once in 1988. That's the first time Donna was in the band. He came up with a plan to get his brother to return to the trees if he could get Van's good friend, Dan Peters, who was on a partial hiatus from Mudhoney, to play drums in the band. It worked. Van flew home, and the band started rehearsals, and soon was touring for the new Epic album. During this time, Screaming Trees went into Conrad Uno's Egg Studio in Seattle to record a couple of demo tracks. After finishing, Mark Lanigan uncharacteristically suggested that they record a live set while all the gear and microphones were set up. All alone in Uno's Seattle basement, the trees kicked some rock and roll ass. No audience, no cheering crowd, but raw trees power nonetheless. This is that session, which sat unheard for over 30 years. It's a great testament to why Screaming Trees are remembered as one of the Northwest's most exciting and intriguing live bands. And it comes on white and yellow fried egg colored vinyl uh, for the, uh, you know, Egg Studios recording session. So that's a must get. Yeah, secret agent Conrad Uno, you know it's going to sound good too. Definitely. Nice Manor Asterman uh, <laughs> reference there. Sweet. Anyways, that's all I got. Should we get into this uh, Screaming Trees record? Heck yeah. History lesson, part one. All right, so this is our fifth Screaming Trees release on the show. Sadly, our last one. But again, I've just been loving all of the deep dives into Screaming Trees. Super happy to have Donna on the show. Um, Let me just give you a quick rundown of where we've been with the Screaming Trees so far on the podcast. Our first Screaming Trees episode was SST 105, the Other Worlds EP, where we were fortunate to have Gary Lee Connor on the show. SST 132 was the Even If and Especially When LP. SST 188 was the Invisible Lantern record, where we had Mark Pickerel on the show. And then there was actually uh, 60 release like 60 catalog releases but only one year in between 1988's invisible lantern and 1989's buzz factory at sst 248 60 catalog numbers in between those two 
Screaming Trees Records. Um, so here we are at our fifth one. It's a comp of those records. It's a great comp. It's it's kind of like Sommery, like, you know, back in the day. This was great SST bang for your buck, especially if you lived where Brant and I did, where it was hard to get these records. If you stumbled across a comp like this or Sommery, you were golden, man. That You were very, very lucky. Now, we've also mentioned on the show a number of sources that we reference. Obviously, uh, keep in mind Mark Lanigan's book, Sing Backwards and Weep, the Greg Prado book, Lanigan. Uh, Barrett Martin has got a new book coming out any day now. Mine has not arrived in the mail. And then uh, while we were doing the podcast, I think I had it for the last episode, 248 Buzz Factory. There's a, a kind of a a chapter in the We Can Be the New Wind book on Screaming Trees. Uh, but what I have not read from so far on the show, and uh, by way of intro into the Screaming Trees and a bit of a, a reminder of the band, I thought I would read from this comp, Ocean of Confusion. Sure. Unlike the SS Trees anthology, SST 260, the band was involved in this one. And in fact, Lanigan oversaw this Ocean of Confusion comp. They weren't involved in this uh, SST comp at all. Lanigan was heavily involved in this one, though, picking all the tracks. And there's a write-up in here, or a, a bit of a spiel, to intro the band from uh, Michael Azarad. So I'll read the kind of the first half of that as an intro to Screaming Trees. Does that have uh, SST material on it? No, it doesn't, because this one covers uh, the years 1990 to 1996 only. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So here's uh, Michael Azarad, bit of an intro and reminder of the band for our listeners. And of course, they were originally from Ellensburg. Here's Michael. Ellensburg is a conservative ranching town smack dab in the middle of Washington state. It's on the flat, arid eastern side of the Cascade Mountain Range, which might as well be the dark side of the moon. When Screaming Trees began there in 1985, Ellensburg was the kind of place where you would get beaten up for wearing a U2 button. F founded by three music geeks, drummer Mark Pickerel, guitarist Gary Lee Connor, and his younger brother Van on bass, and a juvenile delinquent, stoner, former high school quarterback, singer Mark Lanigan, the band was equally rooted in the classic rock you couldn't avoid and the indie punk you had to seek out like a private investigator. The very first things they played together were Cream and Black Flag covers, establishing the yin and yang that would animate their music. Their every classic rock excess, tempered by punk aggression and brevity, their DIY leanings counterweighted by overarching ambition. At the fabled SST label, they started as garage psych specialists with a meat puppets fixation, but gradually grew wilder and trippier, as if on a collective acid bender, which is not too far from the truth. Albums like Invisible Lantern and Buzz Factory established the band's grimy day-glow tumult, big burly men playing big burly music, Lanigan howling into the crossfire hurricane of the Connor Brothers' hectic guitars. Epic signed the band in 1990, but the Tree's major label debut suffered from brutal band infighting that often turned physical. Pickerel soon quit. There were some glimmers, though. Alice said was the psychedelic pop gem the Trees had always been working towards. Ironically, they'd begun moving in a heavier direction, rendering the victory a bit moot. Uncle Anesthesia came out in early 91, months before the grunge deluge, and sank with barely a trace. 
Loath to squander their big shot, the trees resolved to make a great record. While Lee released an album by his side project, The Purple Outside, and Van with his band Solomon Grundy, Lanigan had come into his own with his acclaimed solo album, The Winding Sheet. He'd also quit the band several times and would not brook business as usual. While previously Lee had written the vaguely cosmic lyrics and uncomfortably high vocal parts, from now on Lanigan would write the words and sing well within his range, a raspy, foreboding baritone invariably described in terms of tobacco and brown spirits. He quickly blossomed into one of Rock's very truly great singers. Yeah. So, bit of a reminder, uh, kind of gets into the major label years a bit there, but that section covers uh, the period where Donna was in the band. And speaking of Donna, uh, we actually had a quote from Donna on our our last episode, I believe, uh, or maybe it was Invisible Lantern, I can't remember. It was uh, Donna referencing a quote about her from Lanigan's book, Sing Backwards and Weep, uh, about how they used to go out on the town together. Um, But here's a quote from Lanigan's book about when he first saw Donna Dresch. And this, again, would be around 1988. Van has left the band. He's uh, become a parent and decided to settle down for a period of time. Uh, Didn't last that long, but while he was out of the band, Donna joined the band, and here's what Mark Lanigan said about Donna. We found Van's replacement in a woman from a band we had previously done shows with. Her name was Donna Dresch. She had the most compelling stage presence of anyone I've ever seen, like a more energetic female Keith Richards, lit smoke hanging out of her mouth, swinging her bass from side to side, and banging her blonde-haired head from start to finish of every show. When she was on stage... It was hard to take your eyes off her. I came to love playing live just because she kicked so much ass. Somehow, the symmetry was perfect, and the combination of Lee's 300-pound Angus Young impersonation and Donna's total rock and roll charisma on either side of me and Pix's eye-catching stick-tossing and twirling routine behind me made it an outrageous spectacle. Night after night, I watched from the stage as people thrilled to our new lineup. Donna had that rare quality of true magic rock appeal. I liked Van a lot and had enjoyed having him in the band, but Donna lifted our live performances to heights we had never reached with him. And then Mark goes on to mention uh, about how it was kind of a short-lived period of time when Donna was in the band, and uh, he kind of got outvoted in the band to have Van rejoin the band when Van decided he wasn't going to be... domesticated for for much longer but obviously donna is well regarded by mark they were uh, great friends and bandmates and donna of course has got a a great history and legacy in the american underground uh indie scene yeah he flat out says in the book that the band was never as good as when she was in the band Yeah. yeah should we throw it over to donna yeah all right we're joined on the podcast today by donna dresch donna thanks for being on the show Thanks for having me. Okay, I want to start at the start. Where exactly did you grow up? Was it in Olympia? I am a Navy brat, so we kind of grew I kind of grew up all around, mostly Southern California, but my formative years, I like to say Olympia, because that's where I kind of, that's where we landed. Right. Like high school was Olympia? <laughs> yeah, my last, my last year of high school was in Olympia, and that's where I met all my friends that I still have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, George, John, and Kurt, all... High school friends? 
Uh, no, actually, I met them. Well, John came later. We had another guitar player named Stan in Danger Mouse. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just met them because we all would go to the same shows because Olympia is a small town. I see. Okay. Did When did you start playing bass? I guess I would say 1984. Mm-hmm. My friend Eric was like, you want to be in a band? And I just said yes, but I didn't know how to play anything. Right. And so, of course, I picked bass because it had four strings. Yeah. But we didn't have equipment, so we would go to the music store and uh, just pretend like we were shopping for guitars and then write songs that way. <laughs> <laughs> did you always play with your fingers? Uh, I only did that in Screaming Tree. Oh, really? Because we were on tour with Mike Watt, so I had to be try to be as cool as possible. <laughs> <laughs> was Danger Mouse your first band? No, I was in some other smaller bands than Danger Mouse, like probably like six other bands. Right? Oh, really? I, when I first started playing, I just wanted to play all the time so I could learn and learn and learn. So I would play with anybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. By the point in time you started Danger Mouse, what kind of music were you into? We were obviously all in on punk rock by that point. Danger Mouse is a funny band because it, a lot of it is really inspired by like the punky style stuff from the Nuggets albums. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And but then uh, we all were really into the like the jazz core stuff on SST mm-hmm. and and like No Means No and like anything that was kind of like mathy. We really liked that kind of stuff as well as metal and other stuff. And then I started getting into like Rise of Spring and all that later. But it was like kind of a mishmash of different styles. Yeah, I saw you played with No Means No a number of times. Yeah, I'm just we were just huge, huge, huge fans of them. I'm always like curious about these kind of smaller regional scenes, so I want to ask you about some of the the people and bands and and parts of the scene that I'm curious about. Um, so I'm just going to throw some names out at you. Sure. Dana Rasick, Horton Reflex Records from Enumclaw, Washington. Enum Claude's pronounced. Okay. Um, what's what's the name? Damon. Dana. I mean, I know the label, and but and I probably would remember it if I had more to go with. Where's Enum Claw located in relation to to Olympia? It's uh, over the mountains, I believe. I feel like it's eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. Like maybe more near Spokane. Oh, anybody from Washington is going to be like, Donna, you're ruining our history. <laughs> yeah, uh, Horton Reflex was kind of a, a like a smaller regional label. Yeah, yeah, but I don't remember what was on their label. While I believe Danger Mouse. Oh, <laughs> that guy—he <laughs> vanished on us. It's, it's the same guy. I, like we were, we recorded a full LP mm-hmm. for. Oh, it's in the church. It's in the church diary where he talks about how shitty we are. <laughs> <laughs> That might be a different label. I'm sorry, I'm getting my time. Was not, I haven't really thought about this in forever. Yeah. Well, I'm. Yeah, gonna... the first page on Prince's release diary talks about how shitty my band is. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's funny, though. Yeah. <laughs> we are definitely an acquired taste. Tell me about the Community World Theater. It seems like that was the, the place to that had all the bands. Yeah, I mean... Even more than the Community World Theater for us Olympians, we had the Tropicana in 1984. Oh, what was the Tropicana? What was that? The Tropicana was, there was almost shows every night there. It was only for one year, basically, from 1984. 
and every single band that was on tour for some reason would come to our club. Mm. So we got to see everybody that was on tour that year. And so that's how a lot of us, I think, got really into, you know, learning about touring and like realizing that we could leave Olympia because all these other bands were coming here. Yeah, it was a great, 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 great club. Hmm. Was it a like an all ages club? Yeah, I think anybody from 1984 Olympia will tell you it's one of the most pivotal moments in their life. And the Community World Theater came a little bit after that, and that was very Tacoma. But Tacoma was only 30 minutes away from Olympia, so that we kind of all lived over there. Right. <laughs> Next. How about the importance of like Evergreen to to the scene in Olympia? I I didn't get into Evergreen. They didn't take me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah, it's definitely uh, Olympia is a the Evergreen has a kind of a hippie bit to it mm-hmm. called Greener. So every year, like, I don't know what the capacity of the school is or whatever, but like 3,000 new people would come to town and they were all kind of lefty hippies, sometimes punks. So we would always get like new people to be friends with. Right. (laughs) Did you ever go into like the Satyricon in Portland or to Seattle to see shows? Definitely. Definitely. We would come to Portland and for some reason, we never hung out in Portland. I live here now in Portland. Mm-hmm. But we would come to Portland, go to the Satyricon, watch the bands that were on tour. Maybe we'd go to Koali Pie and then just turn around and go home. We never hung out here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we would follow any band that we loved. We would go to Seattle, Tacoma, Eugene. What do you know about this club that Black Flag recorded at in uh, 85 or, or thereabouts, the Starry Night in Portland. There's tons and tons of information about that, but I never went. There's a group photo on the back cover of the um, It's the Water comp, kind of an early Olympia comp, yeah, in front of a house. I'm not in it. Is, yeah, I know you're, you're not in it, but I, I'm assuming that is like the punk house in Olympia. There's a lot of punk houses in Olympia. Yeah. <laughs> but what is that one? Was that in front of the glass house? It's just like this yeah, big yeah. old gothic looking mansion kind of thing that just looks like a classic <laughs> rundown punk house. Yeah, I think that's, we all lived in those. Every house had its own name. Yeah. We had the Lucky Seven house. We had the Alamo. We had the Go Home. <laughs> we had the ABC house. I think people have wanted to do books about various houses in Olympia. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned the 60s stuff. What about bands like, I know they're a Tacoma band, but what about bands like Girl Trouble? Were were you into that scene too, or was that like a a separate scene from what you were interested in? Girl Trouble, they were always our, like, we just, like, idolized them. Yeah. They would come to Olympia all the time to play shows, and we would go see them play too. Mm -hmm. I probably learned about the Cramps because of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Didn't they start as a Cramps cover band? You would know better than I would, but that sounds like uh, I, uh, I, it could be true. Don't quote me on that. No, they're <laughs> amazing. They, they they lived, well, I don't know if they li- all of them lived at this house, but there was a house near the Community World Theater called the South 56th Street House. We would go to that house, too. You said you didn't go to Evergreen, but did you ever have a radio show? I did. I had one for probably five, five years. Oh, wow. Because... Chaos was, K-A-O-S was the uh, community radio station, so it was, you didn't have to be a student to go there. Right. 
everything was really good about like sharing the stuff with the community. Like, so we could use, um, like cameras, we could check out cameras and stuff if we wanted to, or wow. recording equipment. Yeah. Just because we were in the community. I read somewhere that you were involved in possibly Nirvana's first recording session, which was done at Chaos. Yeah, me and John Goodmanson, I think they were called Skid Row then, or maybe they were Pen Cap 2. I can't remember which version they were then. Mm-hmm. And they had, uh, I think Chad was the drummer then. My ra- John Goodmanson's radio show was on After Mine, so we kind of split the difference and, and they played between us, so John helped me mm. record them. Somewhere I have a cassette, but I guess it's already been bootlegged. Uh, what about this um, local band, Hell Trout? What do you know about Hell Trout? They were an Olympia band. I think they might have started after I left. So I moved to San Francisco probably right after the Screaming Trees tour in 88 mm. or 89. Okay. What about King Crab? Sean Hollister was also briefly in the trees, but he was in King Crab. King Crab is a great band from Ellensburg, and I always associate them with playing with the Screaming Trees. They seemed like they went together a lot. They played together a lot, yeah. Yeah. What about, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Nisqually Delta Podunk Nightmare? You got it. (laughs) (laughs) Nisqually Delta Podunk Nightmare is Slim Moon's kind of like art project, Mm -hmm. and he had a kind of a revolving cast of characters, and... He let me play drums in it once, and I can't play drums, so you know how good that could be. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a record label, well, it was a cassette label called Make Toast Not War, and I put out their cassette. Ah, okay. Pre-Chainsaw. Um, what can you tell me about the group Snake Pit from Eugene? Snake Pit is legendary to us. Anybody who knows Snake Pit, they're legendary to They were Eugene bands, and... There was Billy and Laura and Robert and Mike. Mm-hmm. And then I think Joe Preston filled in for or took over base duties after Laura left. Because me and Laura moved to San Francisco together. And, um, but yeah, they're, they were a great, great band. We, Team Rush covers one of their songs sometimes. Mm. I think Hazel did too. Did Danger Mouse ever play with the Screaming Trees? All the time. Well, yeah. I don't know all the time, but when they'd come to Olympia or we would go to Ellensburg. Um, but that's how I met the Screaming Trees. Through playing with them? Playing, yeah, our bands playing together. So when Van, when Van decided to go be a father and a husband, they asked me to play to go in for him. Yeah, do you remember who asked you? Was Would it have been Lee that asked you? It was probably Mark. Yeah. They were all pretty, everybody wrote, letters back in the day. I don't know if I got a phone call or it was in a letter. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Pickerel was a very good pin pal. Yeah, right. So this would have been, this was between Invisible Lantern and Buzz Factory. Yes, it was 1987, 88, probably. And then you toured, and so it would have been for Invisible Lantern that you toured. Yeah, Invisible Lantern had just came out, Mm -hmm. but we were... We went to Los Angeles and we recorded this double album for SST that a lot of the songs you'll hear on Buzz Factory. Right. Yeah, sadly, that record never came out and I didn't even get a cassette of it because I didn't think I would never hear it again. Right. <laughs> I thought for sure I would hear it again. Did you learn a lot of this, these songs 
while you were on the road, or how did that happen? I actually lived in Ellensburg above Velvetone Records for a little while while I was learning, and then I I just sit in front of the turntables and learn everything that I could, mm. learn all dance parts. Uh, but I lived, yeah, there's, they had a little room above Velvetone Records that they let me stay in while I was there practicing. Okay, and what about the stuff that you ended up recording? When did you learn that? Did, was Lee showing you this stuff while you were on the road, or did you come back after tour? and, and like... We recorded it before tour. We went ah. to San Francisco for a couple weeks, and then probably some of it I knew already because we were playing some of the songs on tour, and then I guess the other ones we just learned so Invisible Lantern is just out and he and you've got like a double album's worth of material pretty much ready to go. <laughs> yeah, Lee, Lee doesn't stop. Yeah, that's wild. I've never seen anybody who can write so many songs. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you and Mark got along really well. Tell me about your friend Mark. I mean, I'm really excited that he wrote such nice things about me in our in his book. <laughs> yeah. Um but well, it, I mean, it seems like he just found you as a real kindred spirit, I would say, at a time when, yeah. when you know, he seemed really unhappy in the band. Yeah, I mean, they seem to fight like family members. Yeah. So, but uh, I don't know. I always, we just, we just clicked. I don't know. We talked we talk and talked and talked and talked and talked. And, you know, later people were always asking me to, like, talk about his drug use and right how messed up he was, but it's like, he wasn't like that, at least around me. I mean, if he hit it, he hit it well. And um, we just, if we just, all that's what I remember is just nonstop talking and laughing. And I just loved him. Did you see any of that, like, kind of legendary dysfunction when while you were in the band? No, not at all. Yeah. There was one time we were going up to Vancouver, Canada, and we got pulled over and they found a bag of weed in the car and everybody's like, I don't know where that came from. And so we thought they planted it. But in hindsight, maybe it was maybe more kids stuffed it in the competitions. <laughs> I don't know. But at least around me, he was fairly sober. So when you joined the the band, did you did you think that Van was eventually coming back? Or, or did you just kind of just go with the flow? I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't, yeah, I was going with the fool. Yeah. Because I knew it was a possibility he would come back because he would really want to leave that band. <laughs> right. <laughs> but he, he had to be a father and a husband, so. Yeah. Um, you know, and I had just, I just had just fallen in love for the first time in my life, really. And, mm-hmm. and like in the back of my mind, I knew that there was other kind of music I wanted to play. And I wasn't actually writing. Right. I was yeah. writing just barely anything in, in there. So I knew it was a possibility. But, um, yeah, band came back when I was in San Francisco. If you would have stayed in the band, do you think you would have been encouraged to write? Or was it kind of understood that it I was it. it was Lee's band, or Lee was yeah. writing the songs? Yeah. Yeah, I don't even, I'm not even sure how much Mark Lanigan wrote his lyrics. N- not at that point, I don't think. Maybe later. <laughs> yeah. There's this amazing photo shoot that I believe took took place in Ellensburg, Charles Peterson Photos in kind of like a back alley where you're you're clowning around and it's both you and van are in the photos what what can you tell yeah. me about that was like you were never in the band at the same time no but i think from my recollection i just really wanted it to be like to show everybody there was no that we still loved each other even though van was doing something else right now yeah 
because we were just I we were all good friends. Right. And Mark Lanigan would always just sit in the front seat while we were driving late at night, and everybody else was asleep in the back, and we were listening to Dinosaur Junior. And I just said, I'd quit this band to be in Dinosaur Junior. He said, <laughs> I'd quit this band to be in Dinosaur Junior. And and we were just thinking it was hilarious because there's no way it's like asking the Beatles. It's like I'd quit this band to be in the Beatles. Right. <laughs> like we just thought it was so funny. Yeah. And then then that happened. <laughs> yeah. So you toured Australia with Dinosaur right after Lou left. How did that happen? Um, we played, Screaming Trees played with Sonic Youth and in Seattle. At, we did a little mini tour with them. Right. And they they were the ones that told Jay about me. So I guess he hadn't told Lou that he wasn't in the band anymore, um, as far as I know. And, but <laughs> they, told, they told Jay that he should call me up. And so I was working at Rough Trade Records in the distribution warehouse in San Francisco by then. Okay. And I get a phone call like, oh, when I come to the office, they're like, Jay Maskis is on the phone for you. And I was sort of panicking because it was my favorite, favorite band in all of all time. Right. <laughs> and like back then we had heroes. I started panicking, like sweating and <laughs> pick up the phone. And Jay's like, do you want to come to Boston? <laughs> I, just, I just said yes and then i was on my first plane trip to boston wow <laughs> out of one <laughs> supposedly dysfunctional band and into another supposedly dysfunctional band <laughs> i mean i was just such a huge fan of dinosaur jr those those first three records would just cannot they will always forever be the best records for me yeah was that your first trip overseas oh yeah i only had been to Toronto and Vancouver. <laughs> wow. Wild uh, rock and roll scene in Australia at that point, too. I mean, we played with just, like, grungy-type bands. Yeah. All long-haired, grungy bands, pretty much. I mean, there's probably a couple others. We played with the band called The Hummingbirds, but they were not grungy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, they were... It was so crazy because we got off the plane, and they're driving us to wherever we needed to go from the airplane, and... They have huge banners that go across the freeway that says, like, Dinosaur Jr. at the whatever club on Saturday. <laughs> I was just so shocked that they'd have such huge signs for a little punk club. And then Van and then later Mike Johnson both end up in Dinosaur Jr. Yeah, it's a small <laughs> world. Yeah, no kidding. At the end of the Dinosaur stuff, I knew, I knew, I knew I had to be in the band with other people like myself. So yeah. it was a total shock. What about this notion that you were, you did or were going to rejoin the trees uh, pre Uncle Anesthesia in 1990 ish? Yeah, I read that in the book. I kind of forgot about it, but now that it's dropped from my memory, I think that was pretty accurate. But yeah, I think Mark did it. Probably told it better than I could. Did they even give you a choice? I was like, well, I'm really in the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Well, the thing that I seem to recall was that this was before Dan Peters joined the band and possibly you had a drummer that you were going to bring into the band with you. But do you do you recall anything about that or who that would have been? I asked I asked uh, the scroll that I was dating at the time mm. if it was her because she played drums in the Holy Rollers in D.C. But they said that they don't recall that. So I'm, I've been trying to rack my head being like, who was my friend? Right. <laughs> We were talking before we started recording. I'm Canadian, so I have to ask about your connection to G.B. Jones and Fifth Column. 
they were, that was the, uh, those were, I feel like all of this, everything I'm talking about in this conversation is this thing changed my life. And then this thing changed my life. Yeah. But GB Jones and the whole, you know, fifth column Homocore crew definitely were like incre- still incredibly important to me. Yeah. Uh, I remember I got a copy of Flipside magazine and I would read the classifieds in the back. And I think they had a, a little ad that said like, are you gay and are you punk? Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, these people, who are they? And so I immediately wrote them and sent them a copy of my zine, Chainsaw. And uh, then we started becoming great pen pals. And then I got to meet them officially when Screaming Trees played at Lee's Palace in 1988. And then ever since then. Seems like zine culture was a big part of your connection to, Definitely. to, to that scene. Yeah. There was a queer zine conference in Chicago, I think, yeah, maybe in 1990, that all these people came together. It's called the Spew Zine Conference. Mm-hmm. And we got to meet all the, everybody from around, I mean, there's people from around the world came to this conference. It was very monumental. I want to pick up on something you, you mentioned a few minutes ago. You said, I, I'm paraphrasing what you said, but you know, when you were leaving Dinosaur Junior, you, you realized you needed to play with people that were like you. And yeah, yeah. Did you did you tour as a member of Fifth Call? I did. I did one tour with them as a guitar player, and then they, later they played shows with Teen Rush when we were on tour too. Right. I wish they would do a reunion show. Yeah. Team Drush was kind of your your next your musical project. Right. Yeah. I just I wanted to find other queer women who were playing music that was like me and not like. You know, it was like but the kind of music that I liked, which is, you know, like, I love Husker Du, I love Dinosaur Jr., I love, like, Rice of Spring and all these, that kind of melodic emo, but with a little bit of a rock edge. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, it was really hard to find girls that liked this kind of music, mm-hmm. and then I, then I found them. <laughs> well, it seems like once Team Dresh really got going, you, you did find your, your... Like Forever Home? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they're still to this day my closest family. Yeah, and you switched my to guitar friends. at that point. I did, but I, we kind of we, me and Jody switch off. It's almost like whoever writes the songs ends up playing the guitar. Yeah, it's kind of our gimmick as we switch a lot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Chainsaw the Zine, but Chainsaw the label for our listeners. Name three records that you released on Chainsaw that you think people should should check out just off the top of your head well obviously the first two slater kenny records were on chainsaw mm-hmm. and um i really like i like every record that came out on chainsaw but the need i think was a great band and excuse 17 which kind of trans went over to a carrie's band before slater kenny that record's really good yeah we call the doctor though the slater kenny record is one of my all-time favorite records yeah i think it's so good and my band, we put out two records on Chainsaw. How did you end up working with the band Hazel in the mid-90s? You mentioned them earlier. I'm assuming you were friend- friendly with them. Yeah, Brady, the bass player, and I worked at a cafe in Olympia. And um, he started Hazel in Portland when he, after he moved to Portland. And I don't know if he told Jody, who was the drummer in Hazel, about me. 
or he told me about Jody or something like, like you guys got to meet each other because we're both like looking for other girls to play music with at the same time. <laughs> right. And then it was love at first sight. <laughs> <laughs> then we broke up. Yeah. Is the label active in terms of uh, like keeping records in print or, or digitally? No, I gave the rights back to all the bands and um, I just, after everything went digital, it's just not as fun for me. Right, yeah. And I'm not that good of a businessman. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, but Jealous Butcher has been releasing some of them. Jealous Butcher just released Long Stockings LP, which was so good, and, and released Infinity X's, Infinite X's mm-hmm. record, which I think is amazing. Two records that just didn't get enough play. Uh, what's the status of Team Dresh? I, I saw you you did a tour with Jawbreaker last year. Yeah, we we went we did a little tour with Jawbreaker. Before that, we did a little one with Delta Spill. Mm-hmm. Um, we're playing some shows on the East Coast in February. We just got inducted into the Oregon Music Hall of Fame. Oh wow! Like two weeks ago. Congratulations! <laughs> so thank you. We're officially part of Oregon history now, which is very exciting. Yeah. And they gave us a fancy trophy and everything. Wow. Do you think you'll make a new record? That's the plan. We have studio time scheduled. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Um, We touched on this a little bit, but it must be incredibly disheartening to see, you know, all of the hard fought gains of the LGBTQ plus community. uh, Lots of which you fought for uh, over the decades under attack from the the far right around the around the globe yeah it could give you an ulcer if you think about it yeah <laughs> i mean you'd have this underlying pressure that's always just underlying over you <laughs> yeah you have this, this, this but you know this is what we grew up with too like this kind of adversity so we can we can we can deal with it how did you end up building a career in film and video production after the chainsaw after everything started going digital and, and the, you know, right in that little, there was a little fine time where CDs weren't really selling, but nobody really knew how to buy MP3s yet. And they're like, kind of like either stolen or Napster or like, it was just like no man's land of digital that you couldn't really make a living at. Um, so I tried to figure out what, what else do I like? And I was like, well, I, I'm such a huge computer nerd. And I was like, I want to make fun things with the computer. So I went to the community college here and, and got my little multimedia certificate while I was learning. And I just really fell in love with After Effects and, and editing. And I got hired on at a friend's company. And then I'd been there for 13 years. Things like that. Right on. Well, we'll keep our eye open for hopefully a, a new Team Drush record in the future. Thank you. I am looking forward to that too. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get to talk about all of my favorite SST records. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your your favorite SST records. I I did see a number of uh, uh, bands from the era played at places like the Community World Theater. I I saw well, I actually saw that Danger Mouse opened for Blast there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I saw that Lawndale played there. I'm not sure if Black Flag ever played in Olympia. Yeah, they played at the Tropicana. They did. The eh? happening opened for them. Oh wow, that must have been wild. It was, it was a scandalous show. <laughs> In what way? Um, I, I remember Henry 
was standing directly in front of Calvin, straight face, not moving, like kind of trying to be intimidating while Calvin, you've seen Calvin dance, right? Yeah. <laughs> Calvin was, is, I was a huge Black Flag fan, so this must have been really weird for him. But he's just like, Henry Rollins just could not take it. He just hated them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it appeared to be. I can't uh, imagine that Calvin was was phased. I think maybe he was yeah. because he's such a big fan, and he put on the show. How could he not be if you're mm. one of your people who you respect is like intimidating you? Yeah, but that was a great show, though. <laughs> I put a Spotify list up on on my Spotify of just all my favorite FST songs. You know, it's funny. We've been doing this this show for like two hundred and whatever it is, 60 episodes now, most people gravitated to, um, you know, Husker Du, Minuteman, Black Flag, Firehose, mm-hmm. Soundgarden, etc. You mentioned that some of your favorite bands were kind of possibly the artier ones. <laughs> that was the kind of music Danger Mouse really liked because it just felt like, it felt like hard music. So we wanted mm-hmm. to be like good at hard music. <laughs> yeah. Like maybe like, like uh, the alternatives, maybe. Yeah, I love. We love the alternatives, man. None of this stuff. I try to listen back to it, and I was like, I don't know if this is the same music I would listen to now. Yeah. But at the <laughs> at the time, but yeah. Plus, I just love the Descendants so much. Right. I auditioned to be in Sister Double Happiness, but I was too slappy. Mm. <laughs> when was that? Did they have a record out? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was right after. It must have been right after the Screaming Trees tour because I was playing without my fingers. That's why it was too slappy. <laughs> what about Slovenly? That wasn't on my radar as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some things like Zoom's Wrist that I never listened to or the yeah. Henry Kaiser stuff. Maybe that was too much art for me. Um, our drummer, one of our drummers in Team Dress, her band shared a practice room with Doc Dahman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they were as loud in their practice space as they were on stage. I never saw them on stage. We've heard they were kind of legendarily loud, but then again, you were in Dinosaur Junior, so it doesn't probably get any louder <laughs> <know>. than that. <laughs> right on. Donna, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. It's fun. I like talking about all this stuff. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. That just goes to show... We'll get, if you were in an SST band for, you know, a couple of minutes and almost twice, we're going to get you on the show because <laughs> we want to hear from it. And man, that's a, a great interview. We really appreciate Donna taking the time. She definitely has a lot of other music and bands out there other than the Screaming Trees, of course, that people should check out. Oh, strap in, Ryan, because I did a deep dive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, first of all, I was checking out the club she mentions, the Tropicana in Olympia. Looks like a wild place. Tons of metal shows, like Slayer played there in 84. Personality Crisis played there in 84 on their Creatures for a While tour. Uh, Beat Happening played there a lot. Melvin's a lot. Butthole Surfers, tons. Young Fresh Fellows, Girl Trouble. DOA, of course. Looks like it pretty much got forced to, to shut down by the Olympia City Council after petitions from businesses in the area. You can find newspaper articles about... Um, from local papers about people bitching about it. Um, (laughs) She mentions this infamous show with uh, Black Flag on the 84 My War Tour with Saccharin Trust, uh, Tom Broccoli's dog, as the flyer says, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, Beat Happening. 
Uh, and if you, you've probably seen this flyer before and uh, maybe Henry was pissed because the poster has the bars and then each inside of each bar is like this cute smiling kitty. Oh, which, which I assume is something to do with, with beat happenings, cuddle core or whatever it was. They called it, you know? Yeah. 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 Henry would have been pissed at it back then, but maybe not now. Probably not now. The other venue that we talk about was the community world theater in Tacoma. So Donna's band in the 80s, Danger Mouse, played there a ton with bands like Frightwig, DOA, No Means No, like multiple times, Naked Ray Gun, Blast, Fugazi, and then just some other shows that I found there, uh, found listings for it at this uh, at this theater. No Effects played there in 1987, and that, that show that they played was also Coffin Break's first show. Wow. Uh, Firehose and Slovenly played there on the Haircut Tour in 87. Fang, The Joneses, The Doughboys, Dag Nasty, Lawndale, Flipper, With Green River, um, Camper Van Beethoven, Scream, Seven Seconds, SNFU, Steel Pole Bathtub, The Mentors, Ryan, Ugh. played there with Crash Bang Crunch Pop. Remember we oh, talked about them yeah, recently? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Ron Reyes. Uh, the U-Men, Christ on Parade with Neurosis, White Zombie, Malfunction with Skin Yard, The Fluid with Nirvana and Blood Circus, Circle Jerks, tons more. Just incredible. Yeah. Her band Danger Mouse uh, released one single on regional label Horton Reflex, released 1989. You can hear some of it on YouTube, just the... Um, uh, the A side of the single called Have Soul Will Travel. If you search that, you'll you'll find it. I don't know if the single is indicative of what they sounded like, but it's kind of like a slapping, funky punk. Uh, the other original, Fucking Blind, is super cool. Kind of reminded me of uh, uh, the skate punk band McRad, actually, a little hmm. bit. Maybe a bit of a big boy's influence. They also cover this Texas Southern rock band, Bubble Puppy, and it's a super cool cover. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love Bubble, Bubble Puppy's cool. You know, I read a while back, speaking of Bubble Puppy, that I don't know if they were an influence on Firehose or maybe Ed from Ohio was a big fan. I can't remember. Okay. I read something about that, that someone in Firehose likes that band, Bubble Puppy. But okay. that one record of theirs is cool. Uh, yeah. Um, there was apparently a full-length album that Danger Mouse had in the can called Sissy that was slated to come out on this regional label called Everrat Records. Everrat was a play on another town in Washington called Everett, uh, run by David U Ulysses Portnow, uh, the label. Looks like he was an engineer, still active today with uh, his PIG Records, P-I-G, which is an acronym for Portnoy Entertainment Group. Uh, there's a band camp, some 80s stuff on there, like this um, hardcore band called AMQA, who I believe were either from Tacoma or Olympia. Um, they're on tons of gigs that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, there's a Ramones tribute single on Pig that I actually have because it has the Hanson Brothers and the Invasives on it. You might have that one too, Ryan. Oh yeah, I do. There's also a live 7-inch split with D um, of DOA in this band Potbelly. So check out Pig Records. Um, Everrat, unfortunately, did not release the Danger Mouse full length, but they did put out some interesting stuff, including an El Duce solo album that nobody asked for called <laughs> called Slave to, the, to Thy Master and some Washington State thrash from bands like Mace and Lethal Dose. Uh, there's also some killer footage of Danger Mouse, uh, including the Princess of Power as she's introduced, 
on this Olympia local access TV show performing fucking blind from 1987. That's super nice. cool. Check that out. Nice. Uh, you can find it easily enough. Just search Danger Mouse on Facebook and it'll come up. John Goodmanson was the guitarist in Danger Mouse. He went on to a career as producer, engineer, another of these products of Evergreen State College that we've we've talked about on the show before with people like Drew Canulet and Steve Fisk. John started out by the looks of it um, as the dude that recorded all of the you know the local contemporaries of Danger Mouse like Herd of Turtles, My Name, etc. Uh, he went on to quite the career, working on albums by Grunt Truck, Tree People, Team Dresh, Engine Kid, Silkworm, Bikini Kill, Some Velvet wow. Sidewalk, so many more. Wow. Um, looks like he moved into specializing in mixing. He's mixed albums for like bands like Sepultura, the Wu-Tang Clan, Death Cab for Cutie, Sleater Kinney. Uh, he's still working. He, he recently recorded and mixed and produced the Dirty Nils Fuck Art LP. Uh, as mentioned in the interview, he and Donna brought Nirvana to KAOS, Chaos, for their first recording. Um, nine songs they recorded um, with Cobain, Novoselic, and drummer Aaron Burkhardt, who was later replaced by Chad Canning. This was before they were called Nirvana. They had various names before they settled on Nirvana, such as Skid Row, Bliss, Pen Cap Chew. Those nine songs recorded um, May 6, 1987 to be exact, were bootlegged for years and some years later came out on the With the Lights Out box set, which also has live recordings from an early 1988 show at Community World Theatre. At that show, they were known as Ted, Ed, Fred, and they opened for another regional band that we've talked about before called Moral Crux. Mm. Uh, they were from Ephrata, Washington, and their de debut full-length came out in 1987 on Velvetone, which is why we probably mentioned them. Yeah, yeah. Short-lived Olympia label Blatant Records uh, put out a few singles, but also this 1991 comp called It's In The Water with a lot of these bands on it um, that were in this Olympia scene along with Danger Mouse, like Treehouse, Fits of Depression, Calamity Jane, Hell Trout, uh, many of these bands shared members. As mentioned in the interview, Donna wasn't in the band for that the songs that are on that comp. She'd moved to San Francisco by then. She was re replaced on bass by Garth Reeves, who was also in this band called Nubbin. Nubbin was an interesting band. They released uh, a single on Horton Reflex in 1991. Uh, Garth on bass, George Smith of Danger Mouse, and Herd of Turtles on drums. And the guitarist was Timo Ellis, who went on to be a producer who worked with the band Space Hog. He was frontman of the New York band Netherlands, and he also had a project with the band Sibo Matto with Sean Lennon. A lot of these bands like Treehouse, Calamity Jane, Helltrout, and Nubbin are on the excellent soul jazz comp No Seattle, Forgotten Sounds of the New mm -hmm. Grunge Era, 86 to 97. There's even a photo of Nubbin inside the album. Okay, King Crab, another interesting uh, band I think we've mentioned before, also had a single on Horton Reflex. I believe they probably came up because the cover art for their full length was done by Jenna Scott, Lanigan's girlfriend at the time, who also did all of that amazing lettering and the vines and spider webs on the back cover of Invisible Lantern. She also designed the cover for Buzz Factory. Um, King Crab with a K, by the way, um, if you're trying to find them, you can hear their 1990 album, uh, their full length, 
Harmony in Defeat on YouTube. Oddly, it came out on this small, small short-lived German label, Historia. King Crab were an Aldensburg band. Matt Varnum, their vocalist, took the cover photo for the original Velvetone release of Other Worlds. Um, Harmony and Defeat was produced by the Tree Soundman Rod Doak, engineered by Secret Agent Conrad Uno at, at Egg. Uh, drum, drummer Sean Hollister of King Crab, who unfortunately passed away recently, was in the trees for about a year, circa 1990, uh, pre-Uncle Anesthesia. Uh, he and Van were childhood friends. He was also for a while in Van's uh, later band, Vallis, and he's the drummer on Van's New Alliance, New Alliance project from 1990, Solomon Grundy. Matt Varnum has a YouTube channel called Varnum's Amusement, where you can hear a bunch of King Crab's uh, stuff beyond the full length, uh, all set to, to amazing flyers and photos. Some of his solo materials up there, an unreleased King Crab album, called A Good Life up on his YouTube channel. Musically, it's not a far cry from the trees. It's kind of grungy, psychedelic rock. Uh, there's also this super cool early cassette comp that I'm not sure we've talked about, Ryan, called Ellensburg, Where Cows Live. Does that sound like something we've talked about? I feel like we may have mentioned that. Maybe I read it in uh, the Sub Pop book, maybe. Yeah, well... I, I'm I don't quote me on this, but I think the track on it might be the earliest trees track. It's called Higher Ground. Along with the trees track, there's three from King Crab, three from what's described as a punk band called MDL. They uh, they have a song called Mozart Done Loosely, so I assume that's what the acronym stands for. <laughs> another that's a great name. Yeah, another band called Green Suit. These are all Ellensburg bands. Um, also, one song from Sam Albright on this comp, who owned Velvetone. Um, and there's a track on, on this comp called A Cool Dry Place by Steve Fisk, uh, which also appears on his K cassette, One More Valley, uh, and features Pell-Mell bandmate Bill Owen on guitar. You can hear that tree song on YouTube. It's super interesting. I'm pretty sure it's just Gary Lee performing solo with some, some overdubs, but I'm not certain on that. It doesn't sound like Mark singing. Uh, couldn't find out anything... You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it might be one of his pre-trees uh, four-track demos that he was doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, couldn't find out anything about MDL or Green Suit, although MDL has two tapes on this same label as the comp Lennon Comps. I, for some reason, I think that's uh, was Gary Lee, but I could be wrong. Uh, they just had those three three cassette releases. Um. I know we talked about Sam Albright for sure when we had Steve Fisk on the show for episode 159, but I'm not sure if we mentioned his visual art. He did the cover art for Clairvoyance, uh, but I also stumbled onto his website, samalbright.com, while I was digging around looking to see if he has more music available. He does. Looks like he maybe plays some bluegrass now. Uh, but you can, see, um, you can see some videos of him playing on his site. Uh, you can see some trailers for the Fertilichrome movie he was involved Ooh. with. Yeah, yeah. Um, we talked about that for sure. Star Steve Fisk, Mark Pickerel, Van Connor, and Mark Lanigan. But also you can see some of his fantastic visual art. Uh, he, he does sculptures, but mainly painting. He's an exceptional painter. Uh, oil and watercolor mainly. He still lives in Ellensburg, uh, but he shows in various galleries, um, around the region his work is really beautiful several different series in many different styles check out sam albright's artwork 
I, I was trying to find some info on Donna's cassette label that she mentions, Make Toast, Not War. Um, I found mention of a zine from Olympia uh, credited to Toby, I assume to Toby Vale of Bikini Kill, Go Team, Frumpies, etc. I know she was super involved in zine culture. Found mention of this Olympia zine called Someone Said that had an article on Donna's label and it mentions her as a member of the band Noxious Fumes. Unfortunately, I didn't see this until after our chat, so I failed, Ryan, to Ooh. ask Donna about Noxious Fumes. Um, so that's going to stick with me for a while. Uh, I assume a pre-Danger Mouse band. She did mention she had several several punk bands before Danger Mouse. Uh, I could not find anything else about Make Toast, Not War, but she does mention it was a precursor to her 90s label, Chainsaw Records, uh, which focused on um, queer core bands or bands associated with what became known as the Riot Girl movement, uh, like The Fakes, uh, a Kathleen Hanna band, the Third Sex, Sleater Kinney, Lockstocking, Frumpies, Team Dresh, uh, of course, Donna's band. She was a big part of the LGBTQ plus zine subculture, uh, which really started in, in Toronto. I had heard of this documentary before, um, uh, but I stumbled across it while I was researching for this episode. So I, I finally got around to watching it. It's called Queer Core, How to Punk a Revolution. 2017, directed by Yoni Laser. Uh, it's up on YouTube, so you can find it. It focuses on the zine culture, music, and experimental films and activism associated with the queer core scene. Bruce LaBruce, pretty legendary Canadian artist, uh, yeah. is on it talking about how um, they didn't fit into the gay scene in the 80s and they didn't fit into the punk scene in Toronto, just too many macho, um, hardcore uh, dude, so he and GB Jones of uh, the band Fifth Column decided to start their own scene basically by pretending there was this huge gay punk scene in Toronto, uh, <laughs> you know, through making these experimental films and their, their zines, like JD's very influential zine. Um, and they basically like just willed this scene into existence. Yeah. Yeah. Talk so, about DIY. Yeah. Just super provocative and radical, pretty much like anarchists, um, in a way trying to reclaim the punk scene from the macho hardcore kids and the skinheads. You know, they talk a lot about how the early roots of, of punk had a lot of gay people, right? True. Played in uh, a lot of the first shows were in, in uh, gay bars. And a lot of the leading bands uh, are in the documentary, like Tribe 8, Pansy Division, talking about how they were, you know, just no love songs that spoke to them. Uh, Jody from Team Dresh says it was like life or death to find other gay women to play music with. Um, she just couldn't go on any longer and not do it. Um, like Donna says in the interview, um, I just had to find my people, you know. Uh, Kim Gordon's in it, uh, Kathleen Hanna. Um, Kathleen was super inspired by G.B. Jones and the JD's zine. Um, she also kind of pulled the same move, she says in the documentary with Riot Girl, where she yep. did this interview in the LA Weekly saying that Riot Girl was a nationwide movement and that there were meetings in every major city, which was total bullshit, but then that's exactly what happened. We've talked before about the unreleased Spinhead album from 1988, some of which mm -hmm. ended up being re-recorded for Buzz Factory, some for Gary Lee's solo project uh, on New Alliance, the Purple Outside Mystery Lane album that you referenced earlier. 
Uh, you can hear some of those songs, the unreleased Spinhead songs on Gary Lee's YouTube channel that have Donna on bass. Yeah, the one, the easiest one to find for me is a track called Blackberry. Mm-hmm. That one's up on YouTube, and you can hear uh, from a man. I that is a long lost SST record that I would love to hear, man. That double LP, hey. Ooh. Well, you know, maybe now with this, um, with this uh, uh, egg sessions coming out, who knows? I. I do remember Dave Markey told me he got all of Phil Newman's t- master tapes when he passed away. Have no idea if this was included in that, but the, I seem to recall the trees saying that they never got the tapes. You know, they just yeah. got a cassette copy. So, ah, uh, it needs to come out. Donna, as mentioned, was the first replacement for Lou in Dinosaur Jr. Uh, headed to Australia for a tour with them in 1989. Uh, I believe in September, after their UK tour with the Lunachicks, um, you can find some amazing footage of the Australian tour in October of that year with Donna on base. Specifically, the Cardoma Cafe in Sydney on October 15th, 1989. You can see that onstage charisma Mark is talking about in his book. Um, the band is just explosive. Who knows what would have happened if Dinosaur hadn't essentially split up after that tour. Um, they didn't play at all in 1990, as far as I can tell. Um, not until uh, Green Mine came out in 1991, which uh, actually started, I believe, as a as a Jay Maskus solo album. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. At which point, Jan- that's when Van joined the tour, uh, followed by Mike Johnson, formerly of Eugene, Oregon band Snake Pit. But who knows, maybe if they would have kept going, Donna would have stayed in the band. Um, that band Snake Pit, who also had a single on Horton Reflex. We've talked about them before, so I won't get too much into them, but they were fucking awesome. Uh, and it is a travesty that nobody has gathered and properly released their output. Uh, there's also great footage of them performing their song Wait on YouTube. Uh, there's also a hilarious interview with them on this cheesy local cable access type show. The hosts are just like super dorky. Um, <laughs> the band are just teenagers. Um, Mike... Uh, Johnson also played guitar on most most of Lanigan's solo albums. He was yeah. the, uh, uh, the guitarist in uh, Snake Pit. Billy Karen was also in the Go Team with Calvin Johnson and Toby Vale. Uh, he was also the only male member of Bikini Kill. Drummer Robert Christie was also in Some Velvet Sidewalk. Laura McDougall uh, was bassist, and later Joe Preston was in Snake Pit as well. Um, Donna, by the way, also played on the uh, Some Velvet Sidewalk album Shipwreck. She played bass on the song Mousetrap, which is likely their best-known song. For sure it is because of um, being featured in the movie Hype, but also uh, the scene in that first Jackass movie where Danger Aaron goes into that room covered in mousetraps. They play oh, do they, pl- do they play that song in yeah. that movie too? Yeah. Oh, okay. I've never seen a Jackass movie, so I don't oh, know. Oh, man. That's Donna on bass. Yeah. Well, I know the song. I mean, I love some Velvet Sidewalk. I know it from the hype movie, though. She mentions Maria Jones of the Holy Rollers as a possible rhythm section, along with Donna in the Tree, circa 1990. Uh, how interesting would that have been? Um, mm. Maria was also in Tribe 8, and Holy Rollers are on the Tree. The SS Tree, Ryan Chris Bobst of Alternatives was in the Holy Rollers. For sure, yep. Great records on Discord. Donna mentions meeting... G.B. Jones and Fifth Column when the Trees played Lee's Palace in 1989. I was trying to find a flyer for that show. No luck. Um, 
but I did find an article called Seattle Sends Us Their Heavyweights, ouch, um, f- for a gig they did at the uh, Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver in 1991. Um, they used a promo photo for the article where Donna was in the band. She wasn't in the band at that point, obviously. Um, the lineup on a Friday night at the Commodore, Commodore Ballroom was the trees headlining with openers Nirvana, Doughboys and the Wongs, which was Chai Pig's. Wow! <laughs> oh my God! That was Chai Pig's band for people who don't know. After the first uh, yeah. split of SNFU. Yeah, that's but that's before uh, Last of the Big Time Suspenders, right? Yep. Like, was that in between that? Uh, before, be, probably between when that came out and and uh, something Green and Leafy, I'm guessing. Oh, the uh, the Epitaph Records. Wow! Yep. Wow! What a lineup! Yeah. Uh, then it mentions the the Saturday gig in this article, which was Tad with some, with support from helmet and love battery. Like what a, what a time to be alive, man. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. There's an interview with Gary Lee in this article and they ask about the switch to a major label. And he says, musically, nothing's different, but it's cool to have a company actually doing a lot of promotion for you. That was always one of our problems with SST. They never promoted us other than putting the record out. And at times that was even a difficulty. Mm -hmm. Okay. Donna's band team Dresh active 93 to 98. And then they reunited in 2004, two full lengths, 95's personal best and 96's captain, my captain, both on Donna's chainsaw records in partnership with Jody's label candy ass. Um, a number of singles also collected on the 2019 comp Choices, Chances, Changes, Singles and Comtracks 94 to 2000 on Jealous Butcher Records out of Portland, who have reissued both full lengths in the last few years, as well as some of the uh, other Chainsaw bands. It's really stellar grunge, kind of grungy rock, uh, super radical lyrics about, you know, gay rights, songs like uh, To the Enemies of Political Rock. Uh, hate the Christian right, but also, like Joni mentions in the documentary, love songs like She's Amazing. I read an article by Matthew Singer from 2017 after after they reunited titled Portland Queercore Legends Team Dresh are coming back just when the world needs them most. And it's, you mm, know, true. Cons- considering what's going on with all the mega bullshit and the parental rights pronoun policy crap that people are trying to bring into schools it's hard to argue with with that for sure and that was 2017 hey yeah it's gotten even worse since then right right yeah Yeah. anyways that's that's the deep dive i i went into on donna good deep dive wow there's a few dozen records to check out there nice one yeah just like we keep seeing on the show man so many kind of tentacles right oh yeah alternative tentacles Mm mm-hmm Should we get into this record, Ryan? Yeah, man. History lesson, part two. All right. So, again, in the absence of a spaceman spiel, I got to find something, if I can, to kick off history lesson part two. And here, out of Gimme Indie Rock, Andrew Earle's book is a spiel on the Screaming Trees anthology comp. Interesting selections throughout Andrew's book. Waiting for volume two of this. Um, waiting for the invite to co-author it with you as well, Andrew. And uh, because he has, it's interesting, he's got the anthology comp and then Uncle Anesthesia and no other Screaming Trees records. Hmm. Very interesting. But here's a spiel. 
And again, like uh, no slight to Andrew. It's just interesting. Everyone's individual selections all the time. I love it. Mm-hmm. Here is Andrew's spiel on the anthology comp. Released to capitalize on the emerging grunge takeover and the band's 1990 move to a major label, this double album provides an excellent cross-section of the three albums Screaming Trees released on SST from 87 to 89. It excludes the band's 1986 full-length debut, Clairvoyance, as that was released on the tiny Velvetone label. And again, still so weird that SST didn't re-release that one, right? The good but not great albums tapped for this anthology do make for divine cherry-picking. The collection nicely follows the band's appropriation of influences, Wipers, Nugget Style, Garage Psych, Post Punk, and Raging Punk Rock, from mess to occasional genius. Start with track number five, Transfiguration, the best song in the Screaming Tree's entire discography, and work outward from there. Yeah, so I was thinking about this coming out in 1991. I think we're firmly into 1991 on the show, by the way. The label was fairly inactive in 1990. I could be mistaken, but I believe the only release we've covered so far that was released in 1990 was HR's Charge. Um, Previous to that, we had something like 40 to 50 releases in 89. Um, It's getting harder to keep track as we go along, you know, because they kind of go backwards and forwards into the catalog numbers. But I I do know we'll be dipping back into 1990 at at some point. But overall, I'd say we're pretty firmly into a new decade, Ryan, for sure. Yeah, the 90s, whoa. Possibly inactive in 1990 due to Gin's uh, priority shifting over to to Cruz, I was thinking. Mm. Um, I thought possibly the distraction of the legal battles over Negative Lands U2, but that didn't come out until 1991. Um, I know for sure there are some more releases to come that were released in 1990. Um, it's going to get even more difficult as we as we move forward. There's just so much repackaging to come, blank catalog numbers, jumping around both forwards and backwards. At any rate, Ryan, this was released in 1991 on CD, double LP, and cassette. 21 tracks total, three from the Other Worlds EP, six from Even If and especially when, six from Invisible Lantern and six from Buzz Factory. So spread pretty evenly across the the SST years. Yeah, I have to disagree a bit with Andrew Earls. I actually think all those records are great, but I would agree with Andrew Earls that they picked some of the strongest tracks from those records for this comp. It is a nonstop psych fest on this comp. It's awesome. Just awesome. I agree for sure. Not much, much to mention that we haven't already talked about on the the other episodes. You know, as you referenced, apparently with the the band long gone from SST by the time this came out, um, which was about six months after Uncle Anesthesia, uh, the trees had nothing to do with this release or assembling it. I'd be willing to bet they probably didn't even know it was coming out until until it did, which was on July sixteenth, nineteen ninety one. Totally. Again, looks like just some really primordial computer artwork. Yeah. Know, yeah. Type. It's, it's not, it, it doesn't look as amazing as the other trees records, like not even close. Yeah. No, um, credits for the artwork. Clip art. Yeah. It's an hour, 13 minutes long. Uh, I listened to it a bunch this week on my original cassette cop- copy, similar to summary. I got it back in the day. Uh, I have to say like, 
like, you know, I'm 48 years old now, so I was 16 when this came out, and I for sure heard the trees for the first time in probably 92 when Sweet Oblivion came out. And, and Yeah, me too. And uh, got this sometime after that, knowing mm-hmm. nothing about their SST era. I probably saw them in a ca- SST catalog at some point. You know, I, I was aware of SST and SST bands before that, but um, probably saw the name Screaming Trees in a in a catalog that I got with a flag or Husker Du tape or something. Um, this was definitely all I heard from their SST albums for many years after that. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, if this was all you heard from that, you would get a pretty good picture of of the, the, the quality of those albums, I would say. Yep. Yeah. And you can tell when you listen to it, like it's a very cohesive comp, but you can hear the sound of the band progress. Uh, you can hear the sound of the producer, the engineer, the studio from set of tracks to set of tracks on this comp, but it flows really, really well. Like it's just it, but it's early trees. It, early trees is great. Yeah. Um, but as, as I was kind of uh, spieling about from that Michael Azarad quote, uh, from that ocean of confusion comp, you know, Lanigan was maybe not coming into his own yet on these, right? It's kind of when he hit uh, not even the first major label release. It was really Sweet Oblivion where Lanigan kind of came into his own. So you hear an era of the band. Um, it's a great snapshot on this comp. Yeah. Uh, unlike Summary, it's it goes in chronological order. So mm, no, yeah. no big surprise that for me, like Side 2 was where I was really really getting into it you know they just got better and better in my opinion yeah the first three tracks barriers the turning other worlds they just sound like early er trees but there's a huge change uh from songwriting and sonically when the tr- fourth track transfiguration kicks in yeah. and then you're just off for the rest of the record one thing i'll say about the bare bones packaging that i found interesting with sst it or that I think about when I th- cast my mind back to what it was like pre-internet getting these, is it kind of added to the mystique, right? No pictures of the band? Well, I don't know. Like, the uh, the vinyl, I've got the double LP, and it doesn't. mine didn't come with an insert. The CD version, though, has pictures of the four other records inside there. And so oh. you've got, yeah, you've got the album cover for Even If and Especially When, and even that was an obscured picture of the band, but then it's like just a micro-sized picture, so... It mentions, interesting, I don't know if we mentioned this on the Other Worlds episode. It says, though, that SST-105, Other Worlds, came out on mini-LP, mini-cassette, and 5-inch CD single. Mm. I've got got it on a full-size CD, I'm pretty sure. Wow. I don't know if I've seen a 5-inch CD single of Other Worlds. I don't know if that's true, man. It says so right in here. Yeah, I'm not making I that up. Well, I, I believe that it says it, but I don't. I'm not sure it's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I just don't remember noting that when we did that episode. I think Weird. you can get new copies of that now. Otherworld on vinyl. I saw a brand new sealed copy when I was in Toronto. Last yeah, week. yeah. No, you can. You yeah. can. And the anthology. Those two are being repressed these mm-hmm. days for sure. Who knows of their origin? But they're being repressed by SST. All right, let's do the ballot result, Ryan. Ooh. Ballot result. So can you remind me which ones we chose? Okay. So we have we've picked Barriers from Other Worlds, mm-hmm. Transfiguration from Even If, 
mm-hmm. Invisible Lantern, title track from that one, and Windows from Buzz Factory, which kind of surprised me actually that that was our pick. Windows? Yeah, I mean, it's, oh, I, it's great, I, I, but I know why. I advocated heavily for that one hmm. because of the yeah. Yeah, there's some great songs on here that we haven't picked. Um, you know, without going back and listening to the parent albums, uh, no real glaring omissions, I would say, like we picked out for the summary episode. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure some Hardcore Trees fans would tell you there's songs missing off of this that should have been on it. But The one that kind of surprised me when I listened to it, it stood out in a different way for me as that really epic, slow, doomy track, Grey Diamond yeah. Desert totally stood out differently for me yep i picked that one too um as one of mine i picked back together great diamond desert which would be this is the end of our comp tape too right so that might be a nice um nice way to kind of end the tape on kind of an understated song yeah really like subtle poison really like black sun morning and Mm -hmm. love end of the universe that would be a good one too because it's so epic yeah i have end of the universe and black sun morning as my my two and three in addition to gray diamond desert yeah. but you pick you know no coincidence that my faves are from or most of them are from that buzz factory mm, era yeah. I, yeah, they just got better and better and then kind of culminated with with buzz factory for me from from the sst era anyways true yeah let's do end of the universe okay i'm in all right hey ryan thanks to donna for being on the show yeah man good research buddy <laughs> this time thanks that just came like pouring out of me like a like a niagara niagara falls niagara falls Falls, man just like billy nice one yeah ryan what's next week next week brant i might be mistaken but i'm pretty sure it's episode sst 261 and you know what that means cruise intrusion part three scott reynolds era part two yeah Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.